I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir. Yeah. Plastics. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. I want to talk about plastics. I want to talk about gold. And I want to talk about the internet. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. You can find out more at podcastclub.link. In it, you will learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because frankly, it's pretty easy, but you will learn to find your voice. You will find the others. And together, in this proven workshop that's back again, you will discover that you can, in fact, build a podcast, not to make money, because you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, to find the people who want to hear from you. Podcastclub.link. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks. Something happened in 1848 and then 1849, and some of it is true, and an important part of it isn't. In 1848, James Marshall was panning for gold by Sutter's Mill in Northern California, and he found some. And the word spread, and in the several years that followed, more than 300,000 people made the arduous trip to Northern California. It was brutal for the indigenous people. It was harmful to the environment. And it was an extraordinary impact on the U.S. economy and on our politics. Hundreds of thousands of people elbowing each other to pan for gold. And almost all of them made nothing. And then the story takes a turn. And the turn is a merchant, a guy named Levi Strauss, an immigrant from Europe, was in San Francisco trying to extend his family's business selling fabric that he brought over from New York and from Europe. And as a fabric merchant, he was busy selling tents, hanging out near Sutter's Mill, and he figured out how to make jeans, jeans with rivets. And those jeans with rivets ended up becoming Levi's jeans. And it turned out that outfitting the gold miners was far more profitable than being a gold miner, hence the lesson. Alas, a lot of that story isn't true. Levi Strauss was in Northern California. Levi Strauss was bringing in fabric. But no, Levi Strauss wasn't at Sutter's Mill. And no, Levi Strauss did not outfit anybody in 1848, 1849, or even 1850. And it wasn't until several years later when one of his customers noticed that his customers were coming in with ripped jeans, that the two of them started a partnership selling jeans with rivets. But the lesson, the lesson of outfitting revolutionaries as a byproduct of how the revolution works, it's an interesting way to explore the narrative of the Levi Strauss Company. So let's begin with this. Levi's had a patent back when patents really mattered. The idea that they could get a patent on the rivets that would hold pants closed gave them a significant 
head start. The next thing that happened in the history of Levi's was that we shifted from a distributed and agrarian economy to one that was based on manufacturing, industrialism. And the people who were going to the factories needed something to wear. And they needed something to wear that was going to be made in a factory because we needed a lot of them. Fortunately for Levi Strauss, they were ready for that. They had a manufacturable branded item when previous to that, for the lower and middle classes, clothes were often homemade. Add to this, starting in the 1900s, the boom in mass-marketed products, that there's a difference between an unbranded pair of pants and one that has a literal brand on the back, that the rivets were distinctive and patented, and the idea that they would list the size and their logo on the outside of the pants may have been an accident, but it was totally aligned with what was going on in the way everything was being marketed to everyone. Again, the world changed, and Levi's, as a bystander, benefited from it. In World War II, the government insisted that Levi's keep making jeans, jeans for soldiers. They were deemed an essential item. They also had to change the design of the jeans to conserve fabric and metal. Again, the government's war footing helped them go to the next level. After the war, beginning in the 1960s, it turned out that culture lined up exactly where they needed it to, that we went from people who weren't working in a factory trying to look like they were going to the office to trying to look like they were working in a factory. And so the hippies, the flower children, the entire new generation adopted jeans as their uniform. Now, that wasn't what the 1960s were about, but they were the uniform of the 1960s. Around the same time, retailing shifted. It shifted from there's this store, there's that store, there's the other store, to there are chains of small stores. Not just giant stores like Sears, but small stores like The Gap. And for the early years of its growth, the Gap's main product were Levi's pants. Levi's pants were the perfect fuel for the Gap to grow. So once again, we're seeing a revolution, in this case, a revolution in the way that retailing is done. And we're seeing one company being in the right place at the right time. A decade or two later, the people who grew up in the 60s and the 70s got tired of wearing suits and ties to work every day. And so casual Friday. The problem with casual Friday, the problem that it created for so many workers is Every other day of the week, you knew what to wear. The word uniform is essential to this narrative from the beginning to the end, because the word uniform doesn't just mean the thing you wear when you're wearing a uniform. It means the same. It is uniform. What that means is you can avoid the debilitating fear of, did I wear the wrong thing? Am I labeling myself 
the wrong way. If there's a uniform, we've taken away the requirement that you express yourself and we let you be uniform instead. Well, the problem with Casual Friday was there was no uniform. Do I wear Bermuda shorts? Do I wear a Hawaiian shirt? Do I wear a miniskirt? And walking right into that came the Gap and came Dockers. By this point, the Gap had divorced itself from Levi's because the fishers who ran the Gap realized that there was plenty of money to be made by making the clothes themselves, or at least outsourcing it. But Levi's, running with their head start, created Dockers, which were a uniform for a day you weren't supposed to wear a uniform. Levi's 100% cotton Dockers. If you're not wearing Dockers, you're just wearing pants. It's a yes. It's a definite okay. Once again, a shift in the culture enabled them to grow the company by billions of dollars. While all this is going on, there are other shifts in the culture happening. One shift is the move from respected, dignified, cared-for workforces to one of relentless outsourcing, to one of cutting costs because your competitors are doing the same thing. Levi's ended up paying the largest fine to that date for using labor that was described as, quote, slave labor in one of its overseas plants. Levi's pointed out they had no idea that their subcontractor was doing work like this, but they should have known how their clothes were being made. And as a result of this relentless outsourcing, Levi's went from a company that made all of its clothes with high-wage, dignified labor in the United States to none of their clothes. Again, a shift in the culture, a shift in the economics, forcing or opening the door for a company to change its behavior as it grew. And what does all of this have to do with plastics and the internet? Well, in The Graduate, the advice that's given to Dustin Hoffman, plastics, you almost certainly don't know anybody who saw that movie and then opened a plastics company. I'm thinking about all the people who I grew up with. I knew exactly one kid whose dad was in the plastics business. But, and it's a huge but, if it weren't for plastics, there'd be no McDonald's. If it weren't for plastics, there'd be no takeout. If it weren't for plastics, think about all the businesses that you engage with every day that would never have become the businesses that they became. The point of the advice of plastics isn't that you should start a plastics company. It's that plastics are going to change the culture dramatically. And this technological shift, you don't have to be at the epicenter of it in order for it to shift how you do your job, how you spend your day. The gold rush ended up changing American politics, which certainly doesn't sound like it has a lot to do with gold. The gold rush ended up shifting the way the population was distributed. And legendarily, but untrue, the gold rush led to Levi Strauss. And on to today. Because today, and for the last 25 years, if you've been listening to me or anyone like me, the word you hear over and over again is internet. Well, well Allison should know. What, what do you is say internet about anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network, mm -hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. 
What do you mean? That's how does one know? What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? At the peak of the first internet bubble in the 1990s, one VC said, "I think the internet is underhyped," and 20 years later, he was right. It was. The internet is not about starting Amazon. The internet is not about Cloudflare. When we say internet with a small i, what we are talking about is a rewiring of our culture, a rewiring as profound as any of the rewirings have affected Levi Strauss. When women started pursuing work outside of the home after World War II, decade after decade, the percentage of women working has gone up. It led to more and more women having independent time and money to spend, which led to yoga, which led to Lululemon, completely missed by Levi Strauss, because even though they have been skilled or lucky through the decades of figuring out the side effects of massive cultural shifts, they missed this one. So, what are the side effects of the massive cultural shifts of the internet? Of a billion-channel universe, of people connecting to other people, of the filter bubble—people intentionally not connecting to other people, of the long tail and the ability to see almost anything that's on offer in almost any category, of search that lets us be smarter if we choose than ever before, of distributed education, being able to learn what we want to learn when. We want to learn it, of politics done anonymously, of a shift of advertising from brand marketing to direct marketing, from known marketing to anonymous marketing. The list goes on for pages. Every one of these shifts is changing every industry, and just as plastics enabled fast food places, just as the car enabled Disney World, the internet. Isn't about SMTP. It's not about how many hops an email takes to get from you to me. No, these are enablers of cultural change. Now you don't need to worry about Casual Friday because you're working from home, and so you don't have to worry about what uniform you're going to wear because you could just be naked. No one knows if you're a dog on the internet. The fact is that this cultural shift has affected every. Single industry, and yet the leaders in every industry pretend that it hasn't. They pretend that building a website or answering some email is the shift that the internet is causing. It's not. It changes every element of how we deal with scarcity, create abundance, inflict tension, make change happen, show up as we say we're going to show up, and make things better by making better things. We have to begin, just as we needed to begin with plastics, just as we needed to begin with union labor, just as we needed to begin with outsourcing, just as we needed to begin with what happens when work shifts. To say, wait a minute, we're in a different world now. The purpose of the Levi Strauss parable should be obvious. Levi Strauss did not cause the gold rush. He did not cause World War II. The Levi Strauss company. Did not cause the 1960s or even the spread of the Gap stores. Certainly, 
they had something to do with causing Casual Friday. But when you add it all up, what we see is that every single time this company has grown and become more important, they have done it because they have responded to the way the world is changing. Not reacted, but responded. Taken that shift in the culture and done something meaningful and important with it. Something that its founder would not even have recognized. And the same opportunity or threat is available to each of us. Because we have changed the culture more in the last 25 or 30 years since Bryant and Katie had no clue what internet was anyway, to create a world that is completely different from the point of view of culture and commerce than the one that I grew up in. So if we're going to build an entity, we're not going to build it on plastic. We're going to build it on the plasticity of culture, on the idea that ideas spread differently, on the notion that what we get to do is respond to a world that is being enabled by a technology that we don't even need to understand. But what we must do is figure out how we are going to take these shifts and do something with them that we are proud of, do something with them where we can actually create value. And it begins by seeing them, seeing them, naming them, talking about them. You can choose to react to it, to fight against it. And I hope if some of it represents injustice, you will. But most of it, most of it is the new normal. It's the new normal in the sense that people are going to get and engage with information differently than we did for the million years they came before. Akimbo is about bending the culture. It's something we get to do on purpose. But to do it, we have to see how the culture already is changing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. And as we're all hunkering down at home, questions are starting to dry up. So if you've got one, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. It's raining cats and dogs here. Forgive the background noise, but here's a great question. I edited it just a little bit. Hey, Seth. Andy here from San Francisco. Thanks so much for all your work. My question this week is, how do you think about rule-based living? Curious, I, I've tried to blog uh, every day for a couple months, and that was great. That got me into a, a wonderful habit of writing. So I guess there's some rules and habits that propel me forward, and then there's some that I find 
super challenging. Like now I'm trying to think about how to limit the content I consume. Yeah, I wonder like sometimes I feel I'm, I'm too harsh on myself. Yeah, how, how do you like find the balance of a rule that is sustainable and helps live a better, more um, generous life? So I want to answer a question about rules and rules about how they fit with our lives and with culture. I think there are two kinds of rules in our life, in our culture, and I think there are two ways to respond to those rules. So first, let's talk about the self-appointed ones, the ones that say, I will not eat meat, or the ones that say, I will observe a Sabbath and not use digital technology or anything else, or the rules about how we comport ourselves. These are rules we get to pick. And there's a lot of history of people, once they establish a rule, either because it's part of community or simply because it's a choice, finding themselves more free. They're more free because they're not living near the edge of the rule. They don't have to spend a lot of cycles reconsidering the rule. They don't have to see how close they can come to the edge of the rule. The rule is the rule, and it gives them a foundation to do the rest of their life. On the other hand, there are other people, other rules, other situations where going near to the edge is exactly what we want to do. There's a thrill to it. Teenagers exist largely to explore what it means to get as close to the edge of a rule as they can get away with. If a self-imposed rule, whether it's based on your community, your spirituality, or just because you want to be more efficient, turns out to be a bright light that's attracting you like a moth, that rule is going to backfire because instead of giving you a quiet place to work from, it's giving you an attractive nuisance to get ever closer to. So rather than spending a lot of time inventing new rules, it might be worth thinking about how we even live with those rules. But there's a flip side to this, and the flip side is sometimes we don't pick the rules. Sometimes the culture around us picks the rules. And it might be something like the rule that all of us happily live with about living in community, about not yelling fire in a crowded movie house if we ever go back into one, about how we deal with children, about how we deal with people in our lives. But too often, that rule is put upon us, and it's put upon us unfairly. It's put upon us unfairly because of our gender or our race. White supremacy is all about putting rules on people who didn't ask for those rules to be put on them in the first place. And so the same two things happen here. Either people who accept a rule and don't go near it, or people, perhaps those seeking justice and fairness, see a rule and not only go near it, but try to change it. So you got me thinking hard about the rules, invisible or not, created by us or not, that we are living our lives by. And it feels to me like the purpose needs to be, is it just? Is it helping other people? Is it allowing me to do better work? Is it letting me be more generous, a contribution to the people around me? Is it giving me peace of mind? How can I help other people who are struggling with rules not of their making make those rules go away? How can we make it so that each of us has the chance to contribute, to enjoy, to be part of the community we have every right to be part of. So yeah, there are rules all around. And if you want to pick a rule about meetings or Netflix or anything else, pick one that helps you. And if you see rules in the world that you'd rather not have applied to you that are applied to other people, 
we need to figure out how to dismantle those rules as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.